Thank you. Hey, well, thank you very much, Pastor Tony. Uh, thank you for Pastor Joe putting this on. I think it's amazing what you guys are doing. I think it's wonderful to see a church uh, being equipped and being able to uh, move out into the culture, be the salt and light that we're called to be. Thank you for Dr. Holden, too, and uh, Veritas and what they're doing. I work with Dr. Holden, and I'm very blessed to be a part of his ministry and the school. Uh, I love what they're doing in their heart also. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself before I hop in here and uh, get going on this. A little bit of my background. Uh, my wife and I, oh, it's detecting. There she is, okay. My wife and I just celebrated, actually, last week, our 19th anniversary. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. She's a wonderful uh, support and blessing and encouragement to me. Um, we have three little kids. Uh, there, there they are. And uh, that's Graham, Savannah, and Emma. Emma actually just turned seven yesterday. Graham's 12 and Savannah is nine. And uh, they're a lot of fun and a blast too. So um, a big blessing in my life. I have a radio program every Sunday. It's, I'm actually from uh, San Diego. And I, I have a radio on K-Praise down there, 12, 10 a.m., if you're interested. I interview, I've, I've been doing this for about three and a half, almost four years now. And I interview from people from all over the place. And I hear their testimonies about the truth of God's word and what God has done in their life. And uh, they're incredible testimonies that I get to hear. It's such a blessing. And I learn a lot from them, too. This is one of the people I interviewed. His name is Dr. Richard Weikart. And he talks about the impact of evolution on um, a person's mind and on culture. And he shows the link between Darwinism and Hitler. It's pretty uh, radical, but it, it ties in a lot of things that you might not otherwise expect and shows things. I interviewed Michael Leray. He's a former Jehovah's Witness, and he... Uh, try to commit suicide five times as Jehovah's Witness. And this is because there is no grace in Jehovah's Witness. You're earning your way to heaven, and there's an unbearable burden of trying to achieve what only Jesus Christ could do. Um, I interviewed Julie Doan. Um, she's an expert on video game and social media addiction. Um, if anybody has kids, uh, you might know what I'm talking about. Um, or maybe your spouse, even. Now, don't elbow anybody or anything, but... Uh, okay, so... Uh, this is pretty, her husband was addicted to video games, if you can believe it. They almost divorced over um, his addiction to video games. He's now chief of psychiatry in the Navy. They were both um, not Christians, and she actually left him, took her kids, and left the other side of the country because uh, he became violent whenever she would try to get him off the video games. And uh, she ended up accepting the Lord, becoming a Christian, and she told him, I won't, I won't get back together with you unless you go to church with me went to church, he accepted the Lord, and now they have a ministry um, that actually reaches out to people that are addicted to, to social media and video games. One in 11 people in America is now addicted to social media, clinically uh, addicted. They're showing all shines, signs of clinical addiction uh, to social media video games. Um, Daniel Messiah I interviewed. He's a former Muslim from Egypt, and uh, he was the nephew of the highest-ranking military officer in Egypt, and he had a supernatural experience where he felt an arm come around him in his room a face pressed against his face, and an audible, audible voice spoke to him. He fell on the ground weeping, um, turned his life over to Christ. He went down, told his family. Um, his mother immediately tried to kill him. And then for the next two years, he said, not a single day went by that I didn't share uh, Jesus Christ with somebody in Egypt. And now he travels the world telling people all about Egypt. And so these are just some of the testimonies that are incredible um, the amount of people. One of my favorite interviews I ever did was with a guy from, uh, he's a high-risk missionary. His name's Victor Marks. 
and uh, he was rescuing kids away from ISIS over in the Middle East. And uh, he is a very, very uh, high-level black belt martial artist, and he has the world record for the fastest gun disarm. He can take a gun out of your hand, have it turned back at you with the clip out in under a quarter second. And uh, I, thought, I, I always like to show this because I think it's so amazing, so I'll show you a quick well, clip here. Hey, Wasn't that amazing? I, I went back and watched that in slow motion like over and over again. Then I, I tried it on my wife. I was like, honey, hold this gun, right? But, and, 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 you know, uh, anybody want to see it in slow motion? You want to see it? Okay, you got to go to my YouTube channel and... <laughs> okay, so this is my website. I've been teaching apologetics to uh, high school students for 12 years. I'm a high school teacher. I also have a master's degree in apologetics. And um, so... Uh, this, I, I love talking about all these issues. I cover everything you can imagine in my classes, all the stuff that kids have to deal with. And what I found is most of the time, uh, whatever these kids are dealing with, the, the parents are, have to deal with it too. And so it's, it's very, very important information. And we live in a culture that's more skeptical than ever before. And so the need to understand how to defend your faith is more important than ever before. And that's why I applaud you for what you're doing, that you, you took time out to be here and do this because it is desperately necessary. George Barna, a famous Christian statistician, said that we are in a crisis in America. If people do not begin to understand the Word of God, if they don't begin to do something and step up and begin to engage, that Christianity in the United States is in crisis. Um, people do not have a biblical worldview. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the Word of God, and they have to know it um, in order to be able to respond to the attacks that are coming their way and that are coming uh, after their kids. So, um, this is actually, if you got one of the little sheets that I put on your, um, your chair there, this is actually Lesson 308 in my series, and, um, and it's inerrancy contradictions, and then I have a real tiny thing on miracles at the end. So I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, and uh, if you, we'll have a question and answer at the end, and I'll do my best to answer any questions you might have. So let's talk about inerrancy, exactly what it is and why it's important. Even if the overall message of the Bible is true, can we really say that the whole Bible is without any sort of error? What about all the contradictions that skeptics claim to have identified in the Bible? This is a popular claim in the culture today. If you type it into Google, it'll come up and there'll be all kinds of stuff. Can we trust the accounts of miracles found in the Bible? Aren't they disproved by science? We'll talk about that. So what does it mean to be inerrant? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It means free from error. Okay, in 1978... Nearly 300 evangelical Christian scholars met in Chicago. They formed the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. What you'll find is that typically when Christian uh, leadership or theologians gather together, it's because there's an issue they're responding to, right? The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all these different creeds were a response to heresies that were popping up and that they felt they needed to address and deal with. And this is why this was formed in 1978, is because there was a movement going on saying, hey, the Bible has errors. 
And so they wanted to respond to this and make a statement about it. They produced something called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and that has served as the standard definition for the majority of evangelical Christians since. Okay? So probably most of the people in this room would ad adhere to that standard um, on inerrancy. This is what it says. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority. Infallible means it cannot fall, it cannot fail. In all matters upon which it touches, it is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. Okay, let's pray. Bow your heads. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, help us to hold it to the high standard that you've asked us to hold it, God. Help us to put it above all other authorities in our lives. Help us to make it the primary authority by which we make our decisions and live our lives, by how we respond to our finances, our relationships, our spirituality, Lord. Uh, everything that, that goes on in our lives, we pray, Lord, that your word will, would fill our minds, saturate our minds, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of the truth of your word as we study it, and that ultimately it would be lived out and we could be the salt and light and the people that you want us to be, God. We pray, Lord, for your power to invade our lives. We desperately need you, God. We love you and thank you so much for what you did for us on the cross. We thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I, like, I, love, I like this church. It's really passionate. It's a passionate church. <laughs> so the Evangelical Theological Society summarizes the Chicago Statement. They said this, the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written and is therefore inerrant in the autographs. That's a summary of that statement. Okay, now, what they said was, they said, if you do not believe in inerrancy, it brings incredible harm to the Word of God. And this is what we have seen over the past century. We have seen incredible harm brought to the Word of God because people have lowered their view of Scripture. Okay, if you've ever talked in theological cir circles, there's what's called a high view of Scripture and there's what's called a low view of Scripture. And we want to have a high view of Scripture. We, wanna, we want to believe it for what it says because that's when everything changes. When the Word of God is believed and trusted in wholeheartedly, we begin to see radical things happen. We begin to see culture change. We begin to see marriages change. We begin to see families change. We begin to see lives restored and renewed. We see addictions broken. It's amazing what the Word of God does when you embrace it wholeheartedly and you take it for what it says. And you don't impose your view on it. You allow it to impose its view on you. Okay, so inerrant in the autograph simply means, and Dr. Holden touched on this, and, and I'll, I'll be reiterating a few of the things that he said um, I always tell my students redundancy is the key to education, right? You just got to hear it over and over again. They say, hey, you already taught us this. I say, well, here you go. Here it is again. When it comes to manuscripts, the word autographs refers to original copies. This means that not every copy of the Bible that has ever been produced is without error. Only the originals are completely error-free. Okay, this is the Wicked Bible, history's worst typo. Anybody ever heard of the Wicked, the wicked Bible? Okay, somebody made a mistake in copying the Bible. It's horrible. 
If we zoom in on it here, you can see it there. Thou shalt commit adultery. Wow. Wow. That's a mistake, right? I don't, I, you know, they're probably going to hell. No, I'm just kidding. Not if they accepted Jesus Christ. But the Wicked Bible was published in 1631. The printers were fined a year's wages or to destroy the entire printing of 1,000 copies. Only 11 of these Bibles are known to exist. This particular one I looked up was from uh, the Dunham Bible Museum in Houston, Texas. Now, here's the thing. We all make mistakes, okay? So the, the, when we copy the Bible, and he touched on this, there are potentially errors, but the autographs, the originals, are what we believe are inerrant, okay? Inerrant in the autographs. Now, what's the problem with this? We don't have the originals. Oh, no, right? So immediately somebody says, well, there's your problem, okay? The Bible can't be trusted because you don't have the originals, and those are the only ones that were perfect, so we have a big problem. Now, I'll explain to you why this actually isn't a problem, um, but before I do, the difficulties that we're dealing with in the Bible are nothing new. This has been going on for a long time, okay? And there have been many people all the way back to the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ himself who are defending the Word of God. It's ongoing. The devil has capitalized. His primary attack is on the Word of God, and he is the father of lies, and so everything he does is revolved around trying to get God's Word to be false, right? That's what he wants to do. So, interestingly enough, this guy, in his book, Difficulties in the Bible, was written in 1907. Um, he talks about exactly what um, he was going to do. He was going to show that the Bible, by and large, can be trusted, and he's responding to the most popular questions that people were asking at the time. And what's interesting about his table of contents is that a lot of the, the things in his are exactly the same as they are today. It's the same thing repeated over and over and over again. And interestingly enough, in my own, uh, as I go about, I hear the same questions over and over and over again. The answers are readily available, but oftentimes people just don't take the time to know what the answers are. You know, when I first started on my search, uh, I got interested in apologetics because in high school, I went to this school and there were a lot of people from, that had all different beliefs. I had a friend who was a Muslim, another friend that was Jehovah's Witness, I had uh, friends that were atheists, and I began to say, how do I know what, what I believe is true? I had a teacher in 11th grade who told me the Bible was all false and all this stuff, and I, I set out to go and look and see if they're true. What I found was that as I searched, the answers were available. And I always was afraid that one time I was going to ask a question that God wasn't going to be able to answer. This is not true. Everywhere I've gone, God answers the questions that we have. The answers are there for those who want to know the answers. And a lot of times we pretend that there's an intellectual problem with the Bible when in fact it's just that our heart doesn't want to obey. And so what we do is we pretend there's a problem when in reality all it is is, is that we just don't want to do what God asks us to do. And so one of the best prayers you can pray is, Lord, help me to desire to be obedient. Because there's two things in apologetics. There's intellectual apologetics and there's emotional apologetics. A lot of times when you're talking to somebody, it's not an intellectual issue, it's an emotional issue. And so they don't have any problem with intellectually, but it can get confusing, right? And so we want to be praying for people's heart, both emotionally, that they would fall in love with God and God would draw them to him, but also that intellectually their questions are answered. So um, Norman Geisler, uh, which a lot of what I'm teaching today is drawn from him, and uh, he wrote this big, the, the big book of Bible difficulties, and he's written numerous books on these uh, sorts of subjects. 
The answers are readily available for you if you'll take the time to look for them. Now, I want to talk real briefly about what's called the law of non-contradiction. God gave us logic for a reason. Because if we can think clearly, we will get to truth. Okay? And when we get to truth, we get to Jesus. When we go to Jesus, we get to truth. God created us to be drawn, I think, magnetically to two things, and that is truth and love. We are attracted to them like a magnet. Um, when we hear truth, it appeals to us. We want it. When we feel and we experience love, true love, we want it. And God draws us with both of those. So logic is very important. The law of non-contradiction simply says that contradictions do not occur. Two propositions that are contradictory cannot both be true. And this is very important because um, the devil will try to violate the laws of logic. Okay? Hinduism violates the laws of logic. Buddhism violates the laws of logic and just says, oh, don't worry about it. Let's just go with it. You know, Mormonism, they have what's called a burning in the bosom. And it says, just believe because you have a feeling. But Christianity is not, we are not called to believe based on a feeling. We're called to believe based on truth. And so logic and rational thinking are on our side. We always win. I was handcuffed to an atheist about maybe six months ago. Uh, BuzzFeed, anybody heard of BuzzFeed? They called me up and they say, hey, we'd like to handcuff you to an atheist for 24 hours. And uh, I said, I said, whoa, okay, well, I'm down, you know, I like adventure. And uh, I went to my wife and I said, you know, I got to ask my wife. And, and she said, what? No, where are you going to sleep? Oh, well, if they, they want us to sleep at our house. I'm going to lie on the couch, handcuffed to this. She says, like, no, we have kids in the home. And I said, honey, don't worry. He's going to be with me the whole time. No, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> and and uh, she said, no, no, I, I don't want to do this. I said, honey, listen, Paul was in chains for the gospel and I need to be too. And uh, she was like, you know, I spiritually manipulated her is what I just did. Right? So, so that's a sin, by the way. Don't do that. Okay, so it, we ended up doing it. But what ended up happening, it was really interesting. The guy uh, at the conclusion when they were interviewing us, he says to me, he says to the producer, he said, you know, uh, they said, what surprised you most about Kevin and, and meeting this Christian and spending 24 hours with him? He goes, you know, he goes, he's pretty smart. And he goes, uh, and they have a lot of books in their house. He reads a lot of books. And I was like, what? You thought Christians like, didn't read? That's like weird, right? Um, here's the thing. The most rational thing you could ever do, the most logical thing you could ever do is be a Christian. I tell my students, it would be far harder for me to walk away from Christianity than to be a Christian because the evidence for the truth of it is overwhelming. Okay, and, and this is what we have on our side, but it's no use to us if we don't take the time to study and to know. And this is what God is calling us to do. Aristotle said this, one cannot say of something that it is and that it is not in the same respect and at the same time. It violates the law of non-contradiction. God gave us this law. Okay, Aristotle is so hot. I'm freezing. Okay, is this a contradiction? Actually, it's not. Why not? Because it's not in the same sense. One is they're saying he's attractive, which is, would never happen, but they're saying he's attractive. The other one, he's saying, I'm cold. It's two different senses. Now, the reason I give this to you is because when it comes to errors in the Bible or supposed errors in the Bible, people will often convolute things and mix things up, take things out of context, and because they don't take the time to dig a little deeper, they just go, oh, the Bible must have errors. 
But it's interesting. I've thought to myself, God, why didn't you make it more clear? Why didn't you just write a, a, a encyclopedia that laid everything out, right? Everything is done in stories in the Bible. And sometimes I'm like, why, why can't it just be easier than this, God? And I was thinking about this, and one of the things that's really interesting about God is that he's a person. He has a personality. And in the same way that you want your spouse to want to know you, right? You, you'll hear this a lot. A uh, uh, wife, and sometimes a husband, but it happens a lot, I think, with wives. The wife, um, she does not want to remind her husband of her birthday or their anniversary. She wants him to remember it without her telling him. And the husband is very angry because he's like, well, why didn't you just tell me? And then we would have done something. And she's like, because then it wouldn't have been meaningful. And you're like, oh, gosh, why is everything so hard? And, and uh, God, interestingly enough, wants to be known. He is a personal God. He is not some detached, abstract thing out there. The Bible says, when you seek me like you seek gold, you will know me and you will find me. Jesus Christ said, uh, uh, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens, what? I will come in and eat with him. What a strange thing for God to say. But, but it's because God wants to fellowship with us. And part of that process is that the Bible is not a book you can just open to the page and go, oh, now I know God. It doesn't work like that. It's a relationship in which he wants death. He does not cast pearls before swine. He wants you to want to know him. And so it takes time to get to know God. Okay, let's start off with one of the, the contradictions that people uh, often bring up. They'll, this is in Matthew chapter 1. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. This is in Luke chapter 3. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, on the face of it, this immediately looks like a contradiction. Why? Because in one, in the book of Matthew, it says that Jacob is the father of Joseph, but in Luke, it says that Heli is the son of Joseph. Well, we look at that, we go, well, that's certainly a contradiction. Okay, now, real quickly, I want you to take just about a minute and see if you can turn to your neighbor and tell them, okay, why is this not a contradiction? Even if you just come up with a reason on your own, real quick, turn to your neighbor and say, here's why I think this might not be a contradiction. Okay? Okay. That's enough. Enough chattering. Okay, that's, we're good. So, now, this is actually one of the most easy supposed contradictions to solve. It's very, very easy to solve. It's easy to figure out uh, if you just do a little bit of study or just type it into Google. It'll pop right up. Um, but um, I'm going to tell you what it is, right? Who's your daddy? Uh, we'll get to that. But these are the kinds of things that are brought up, and they're used to try to disprove the Bible. Um, but they're, they're very weak and ineffectual um, once we begin to learn the Bible. Why do Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant? Well, because of God's nature. Because God is responsible for producing the Bible. This is the argument for, in, for inerrancy. God is perfect and therefore cannot lie or make mistakes. That's his nature. The Bible was inspired by God. It is his word. God produced it. Therefore, the Bible cannot contain any falsehoods or errors. This is why we believe in inerrancy. So let's look at what the Bible says. Number one, it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18. By the way, 
this in and of itself looks like a contradiction because the Bible says that nothing is impossible for God and then it says it is impossible for God to lie. What? Right? I always tell my students, uh, can God do anything? And they all go, yes, he can. And I go, no, you're wrong. He can't. He can't lie. He would, he would deny himself. There's other things he can't do either. He can't die. Did you know that? He can't die. And also, he cannot create a being that has existed as long as he has. Okay, now, on its face, it looks like a contradiction. But the reality is we have to go to the context in which it says nothing is impossible for God. Or Christ says all things are possible through God. Right? What is it referring to? Well, you have to read it in context. It's talking about specifically in that section where Jesus says nothing is impossible with God, it's talking about salvation. It's talking about that nobody is beyond God's reach. It's not talking about uh, God creating a being that could live forever or God being able to die. That's not what it is. So you have to read it in context. Uh, Very, very important. Okay, Titus 1-2, God who does not lie. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. Over and over again, the Bible emphasizes God's perfection. He does not make mistakes. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Number two, the Bible was inspired by God. Now, just to be clear, if you look on that little sheet I gave you, I have these all classes lined out. This is class 302. I talk about inspiration. Um, All scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Have you not read in the book of Moses, God said, Mark 12.26. For God said, honor your father and mother, mother, you nullify the word of God. Jesus is saying that the word of God, the Old Testament in this particular case, is the actual words of God. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside. So what what is very clear here is that Jesus treated, specifically in this case, the Old Testament as the word of God. Very important. If you're going to be consistent and be a Christian, you must believe that the Bible is the word of God. You cannot consistently say some of it's God's word and some of it isn't and be a Bible-believing, consistent Christian. It's not possible. Part of the reason I believe in inerrancy is because in order to be logically consistent, you must believe that. That's the way it is. Okay, so, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. Preserve my life, Lord, in accordance with your love. All your words are true, Psalm 119. So the psalmist says all his words are true. Jesus says your word is truth. Every word of God is flawless. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. I ask of you, Lord, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Proverbs uh, also is stating here, the author, that uh, his words are true. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. Okay, Samuel, and again the psalmist, speaking specifically, the word of God is flawless. Number one, God is perfect and therefore cannot lie or make mistakes. Number two, the Bible is inspired by God. It is his word. And number three, the Bible cannot, therefore, contain any falsehoods or errors. This is what is called a deductive uh, conclusion, uh, meaning if your two premises are true, then your conclusion must be true. And the Bible says these premises are true. Now, we take it on faith that these are true, okay? 
but it's faith that is reasonable, faith based on evidence. Okay, people say, well, how do you know it's true? Isn't that circular reasoning? Well, we can get into that, but we're not saying simply because the Bible says it's true, therefore it's true, although we could argue that, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, we are saying that based on what we know, on the evidences, it is most probably true, okay? All of us live life based on probabilities. Um, some of you have very strong faith, and you might say, I believe with 90% confidence the Bible is true. Some of you may not have faith as strong, simply because you haven't taken the time to look at all those evidences and, and grow in that, right? And maybe you're at 55%, right? Uh, uh, my atheist brother-in-law, uh, I took him to a debate between a Christian and an atheist at uh, one of the universities down in San Diego, and he was adamantly against God um, for a long time. And when we left the, the university, I said to him, so what do you think after that debate? What do you, what do you think? What are the chances that uh, you believe in God now? And, and I said, give me a percentage. And uh, he, he said, I can't put a number on that. And I said, oh, come on, just humor me. Just give me some percentage. And, and he said, 50-50. Uh, and I was like, I, I, I was stunned. I couldn't believe he said that. 50-50. I was like, yes. All I have to do is get him to 51%, and I win. Okay? <laughs> so... So here's the thing. We are finite beings. I do not have to know something 100% before I commit to it being true. There's almost nothing. Now, there are two ways to prove God is true beyond a shadow of doubt, 100% deductive proof, two that I know of. But I don't have to know 100% before I can commit to the truth of God's word. Okay? Um, because all of life is based on what is most likely to be true. And God has given us overwhelming evidence and confidence that his word is true uh, through a variety of evidential methods uh, and so forth. Some common objections to inerrancy. The Bible is written down by humans. Humans make mistakes. Therefore, the Bible must contain mistakes. This is one you hear very frequently. People will say it all the time. Another one people will say is inerrancy only applies to the original copies of the Bible. No one possesses the original copies of the Bible. Therefore, inerrancy has no real meaning or significance today. Let's deal with the first one. The Bible is written down by humans. Humans make mistakes. Therefore, the Bible must contain mistakes. It is true that all humans make mistakes. That's true. However, no human makes mistakes all the time. Everyone has gone some amount of time without making any mistakes. Okay, for example, this guy right here. This is Mr. Pac-Man. He played 256 levels of Pac-Man for six hours without making a single mistake. As far as I know, he's the only person that ever did this. Now, I don't know if that's a useful way to spend your time, but regardless, he didn't make mistakes for six hours. And so what is the point? The point is, is that people can go for a certain amount of time without making mistakes. How can the Bible be the word of God if it was written by men? Well, nobody's perfect, so the authors had to have made mistakes. What would you say? You would say an imperfect person can still write something that is perfectly true. Um, I've actually had this exact conversation. You know, when you use your apologetics, it's like really exciting, okay? And so I knew this and somebody said, yeah, how can it be? And I said, an imperfect person can write something that's perfectly true. And they went, good point, right? Now, they didn't become a Christian right then and there, but this is what it takes. When I was in college, I, had a, I was in a, sitting in a physics class. I had a guy next to me. I was trying to get him to go to church. I even offered to pay him $20 if he would go to church with me. I don't know if that's, if that's sinful or not. I don't know. But, but I, I did it. He said, no, I, I'm not going to go to church with you for 20 bucks. 
And we're sitting in the class, and all of a sudden the professor mentions the second law of thermodynamics. I said, this proves evolution wrong, like a little too loudly in class, right? He, and he was like, what? What are you talking about? And I said, listen, this is the physics professor saying this. It's not me. Listen. He listens. He goes, huh. And I go, ready to go to church with me? He goes, no, I'm not going. Uh, after the semester ended, I didn't see him again, and I thought, well, well, there he goes. Well, three years later, this guy runs up to me in a coffee shop, and he has a shaved head, all these tattoos all over him, and he goes, Kevin. And I'm like, whoa, who are you? And he goes, it's me, Robert, from physics class. This was three years later. He goes, I've been praying that God would help me find you because what you said to me in that physics class ultimately led me to Christ. I was like, whoa. So here's the thing. It's just the small seeds that are planted that ultimately make a gigantic difference, right? My father-in-law didn't accept Christ till 77 years old, right? He was a Jewish agnostic. And today, he's a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian. Comes to my Sunday school class every single Sunday, without fail. And so, we want to take these little, these little nuggets that God gives us, and we want to begin to pour them into our hearts and our minds. What does the Bible say? Write them on your, on your door frames, right? Post them around your house. Because as this stuff goes into our minds and it goes into people's hearts, don't think it doesn't go out and come back void, right? God's word is powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword. In this case, the Bible is very similar to Jesus. Jesus is the living word of God. The Bible is the written word of God. Jesus is God in human form. The Bible is God's words in the form of human words. Jesus, 100% God and 100% man. The Bible, produced 100% by God and 100% by man. It's incredible how God works with us to achieve his goals. What a blessing that we can be a part of that. Jesus, completely sinless. The Bible, completely errorless. Jesus could live a sinless life because he is not merely human, he is also God, and the Bible can be inerrant because it was not merely produced by humans, it was also produced by God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so, number two, this is the second thing that people complain about. Inerrancy only applies to the original copies of the Bible. No one possesses the original copies of the Bible, therefore inerrancy has no real meaning or significance today. Now, this is interesting why would God, because he is sovereign, allow the originals to go away? Well, maybe it's because if somebody had the originals, then they could manipulate them and make them say whatever they wanted and then control other people. And so you'd have a person in charge of the scriptures rather than God in charge of the scriptures, right? So maybe he made them go away on purpose. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Hebrews, actually started to worship the snake that was put on the stick uh, by Moses to heal the people that were bitten by the snakes. And later on, that snake that was used as an evidence of faith in God became an object of worship. And they were not supposed to worship the snake, but they, in, they started worshiping it. And so maybe God allowed that to go away so that no one person could control all those. Um, uh, Dr. Holden was talking about, we have 5,500 uh, original Greek uh, parts of manuscripts of the, Old Test- uh, of the New Testament. Well, nobody can control 5,500 copies. We have 25,000 manuscripts total in other languages. Well, nobody can control all 25,000 of them. They can't manipulate them and then say, hey, this is what the Bible says, right? It's all spread out and we can compare and see that evidence. So maybe that's why God took it away. It is true that no one possesses any of the Bible's original manuscripts. In class 304, there is incredible manuscript evidence for the Bible. I just talked about that. And the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Old Testament has remained virtually unchanged for the last 2,000 years. 
OK, so two important factors when deciding the copy you have is the same as the original, which is gone. The first one is the closer a copy was written to when the original manuscript was written, the more likely it is to have been copied accurately. So let's say the original manuscript, a, a scriptural manuscript, was written in 70 AD. And uh, you have a hand copy from 220 AD, 310 AD, and 475 AD. This one gets burned up in a fire. You want to make one in 2013 AD or 20, where are we, 2019 AD now? 2018? Are we 2019 or 2018? Whoa, that's weird. OK, sorry. Uh, our, so let's say you want to make one, right? Which copy, hand copy, are you going to use to make your copy? Shout it out. Yeah, number one. Why? Because it's closest to the original. And so uh, the closer a copy was written to when the original manuscript was written, the more likely it has to have been copied accurately. Okay? Number one. Number two, the more copies you have, the more certain you can be of what the original manuscript said. Now, this is significant, too. Okay? He, he was talking about other ancient manuscripts. You have Caesar, Plato, uh, you, you have uh, Pliny, all these different ancient manuscripts in classical literature. Some of them have as little as like five copies, seven copies. Remember, of the New Testament, we have 5,500 Greek manuscript copies. That's unbelievable. Now, if you only have one copy of something, let's say that's the original manuscript. Here's hand copy one. You are the best friend I ever had. Now, notice the original says, you are the best friend I've ever had. Hand copy two, you are the worst friend I've ever had. <clears throat> hand copy three, you aren't the best friend I've ever had. OK? Now, you see the different copies. They have errors, OK? And uh, let's say this one burns up in a fire, the original manuscript, but you want to remake the original. So what do you do? You are, you are, you aren't. So I'm oversimplifying this process, by the way. You are, you are, you aren't. Uh, you aren't is, is not correct, because these two hand copies have are. We're going to get rid of that aren't. The best, the worst, the best. Worst is not a word, so we get rid of that. Friend I, friend, friend, uh, friend I've, friend I've. Uh, so we go with friend I've ever had. These end in periods. That one ends in a question mark. Therefore, because we have multiple copies, we compare them against one another, and we're able to reestablish what the original said. So there it is. Based off of the copies, you are the best friend I've ever had. And now we have our original. We compare it. Now, the, this one's gone, but if we were to compare it, right, boom. We're back to what the original said. This is why we can still trust in the word of God, even though we don't have the original manuscripts. Does that make sense, what I just said? OK. So this is really important, because there is no other ancient document that you can put more confidence in that it has not been changed than the Bible. Old Testament is second to the New Testament, but that's it. There's nothing else that compares. OK, is inerrancy really that important? Would it really matter if the Bible had a few small errors if the main parts were true? OK, so now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the primary attack the devil uses to get people off the word of God. We see it all over in the church today. It's happening. You know it's happening. The Presbyterian Church USA, which is the largest Presbyterian denomination in the country, has now embraced abortion, homosexuality, and evolution. And why? It's not a coincidence that they deny the inspiration of Scripture. 
Now, please uh, don't come up uh, to me afterwards and um, be mad at me that I said something about the Presbyterian Church if you went there. There are many very, very good people in the Presbyterian Church. There are many good people who are trying to move the church back towards uh, inerrancy and infallibility. But suffice it to say, that's what's happening. And where does that come from? It comes from walking away from a high view of Scripture. That's how important it is. Um, it doesn't mean that automatically a person loses their salvation. That's not what it means. But you're doing incredible damage. The more we pick and choose, cherry picking the Scriptures, here's what happens. Pretty soon, the God of the Bible begins to look a lot like us instead of us looking a lot like him. And that's idolatry. When we begin to make God into our image rather than God being able to make us into his image. And as we begin to pick and choose and say, no, I don't think that's of God. I don't think that's of God. I don't. That's the exact attack of the devil. Now, um, I don't know if any of you have seen this. This is one of the largest uh, snakes in the world. I don't know if you like snakes or not, but it's horrible. You might want to close your eyes if you don't like snakes. This snake is huge. It's a really big snake. Uh, anybody don't like snakes in here? Okay. So it is a big snake. Um, and uh, so... Okay. Sorry, sorry. Sorry if you're... If you're you know, I, I teach high school students. I teach high school students. So this is about the time my students start to fall asleep. So what I do is I, I wake them back up. So anyway... Okay, so, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His primary attack is to cast doubt on the word of God so that you will begin to walk away from the word of God. And as soon as you walk away from the word of God, then God's power begins to ebb in your life. The radical changes that can happen when we embrace scripture begin to diminish. Admitting errors in the Bible would not mean that everything it says is false, but it would lower its overall credibility. And ultimately, that example has been laid out before us over and over and over again throughout the history of the church. All you have to do is study church history, and you will see that every time they get themselves in trouble, it's because they began to get off the Word of God and onto whatever their own traditions or practices or whatever they were. That's why Calvary Chapel is so awesome, right? Because it's all based on the Word of God. That was, uh, I grew up in the Calvary Chapel, so that's what Chuck Smith's whole emphasis was, was back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the Bible. And this is when we see uh, radical things happen. And, and a, a good example of this is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman used to be a Christian, but now he's written bo books uh, uh, slandering Jesus Christ and the Word of God, misquoting Jesus, Jesus interrupted, forged, all these uh, books. And, and where did that start? He writes this. A turning point came in my second semester in a course I was taking with a much revered and pious professor. A much revered and pious professor. Um named Cullen's story. We had to write a final term paper on an interpretive crux of our own choosing. I chose a passage in Mark 2. Jesus wants to show the Pharisees that Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath, and so reminds them of what the great King David had done when Abiathar was the high priest. 
One of the well-known problems of the passage is that when one looks at the Old Testament passage that Jesus is citing, it turns out that David did this not when Abiathar was the high priest, but in fact when Abiathar's father, Ahimelech, was. In my paper for Professor Story, I developed a long and complicated argument. I was pretty sure Professor Story would appreciate the argument since I knew him as a good Christian scholar who, like me, would never think that there could be anything like a genuine error in the Bible. But at the end of the paper, he made a simple one-line comment that for some reason went straight through me. He wrote, maybe Mark just made a mistake. I started thinking about it, considering all the work I had put into the paper, realizing that I had had to do some pretty fancy exegetical footwork to get around the problem and that my solution was, in fact, a bit of a stretch. I finally concluded, hmm, maybe Mark did make a mistake. Once I made that admission, the floodgates opened. For if there could be one little picayune mistake in Mark 2, maybe there could be mistakes in other places as well, and maybe these mistakes apply to bigger issues. And so you can see, today he's an agnostic, writing against the Word of God. So obviously, it is a very, very important issue. Um, the allowance to walk away from an inerrancy and infallibility begins to corrode a person's faith. Now, listen, I don't believe in believing something just because you want to maintain your faith. Um, I believe in a rational faith, an evidence-based faith. Um, but there is plenty of evidence that the Bible is inerrant and is infallible. There was no need for him to go, go along with this decision. Uh, what are the solutions to his issue? So, here are some of the ways you could have responded to that. The phrase in the time of is translated from a single Greek preposition, which can be translated in a variety of ways. So, Abiathar was alive during the time Jesus was referring to. Another valid way of translating the passage is in the days of Abiathar the high priest. Either one is an accurate statement for any time during which he was alive. So, even though that was the case, it could have been that one of the high priests was more popular than the other and more well-known among the people that he was speaking to, right? So it just says in the time of Abiathar, who was a high priest, you could say in the days of President Ronald Reagan, referring to a time before or after he was actually in office, and still not be an error. It didn't have to be an error. Jesus might have chosen to refer to Abiathar instead of Ahimelech because Abiathar was more significant as both a biblical character and a high priest. So you don't have to all of a sudden jump to the conclusion that it's an error. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I hope so. This is Augustine on this particular issue. This is what he says. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken, but either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong or you have not understood. And what I've found over time as I look at the things that people bring up and say this is an error is that when I go and explore it and begin to study it and begin to look at what other people say, I find out, oh, wow, well, that makes perfect sense. Now I understand why they phrased it that way. Or now I see that's an idiom. Or now I understand the context of that particular scripture. And that's what we have to focus on. The key word here is apparent. Just because something in the Bible seems to be an error, that doesn't mean it really is one. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up here soon. I'm almost out of time. I have more to talk on this issue, but I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, before Mount Everest was discovered, what was the highest mountain on Earth? Anybody know? Oh, you got me. <laughs> Darn it. Okay. <laughs> you get a free DVD in the back. Okay, so there we go. Good job. Okay, 
So here are some of the errors that they claim the Bible has. Historical errors, scientific errors, moral errors, logical errors, okay, and contradictions. In my lessons, I go through all of these different supposed errors, and we examine them, okay? Historical errors, I talk about it in Lesson 303. Alleged scientific errors, 305. And moral errors in, in my classes, 306 and 307. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rifle through these lightning fast, so I apologize for that. But Mistake one, assuming the Bible is guilty until proven innocent, and that unexplained is unexplainable. Do not, uh, do not allow what you consider unexplainable... I'm sorry, do not allow what you consider to be unexplainable to keep you from what is obviously true. Okay, so there may be things that we don't always understand, but there are things that are obviously true. Okay, so uh, somebody might say, well, I don't understand what this has to deal with here in the Bible. And I had an atheist say, therefore, the Bible's not true, or God's not real. Well, that's kind of a leap, right? Um, we know that nothing doesn't make anything. God had to have made everything, right? And so... Don't allow um, the unexplainable uh, to cause you to deny the obvious. The Bible is innocent until proven guilty. That's how we should, we should treat it. Why? Because it has a 2,000-year track record that's impeccable. It's been attacked for 2,000 years, and it constantly comes out proving itself to be true. That's how we should approach it. The Hittites are a great example. They are mentioned over 40 times in the Old Testament, but nobody had any archaeological evidence of them. Well, in 1906, they finished um, uncovering the Hittite Empire, and the Bible was validated. This happens again and again and again. Uh, and so the skeptics are refuted over and over again. Why do I give the Bible the benefit of the doubt? Because it deserves to have the benefit of the, of the doubt. Um, there he goes. Okay, mistake two, ignoring a, a Bible passage's context. Did you know the Bible says there is no God? Well, the fool says in his heart there is no God, right? It's very important to get into the context. I had somebody try to prove the Bible was wrong to me by looking at Levitical law and saying Levitical law was immoral. There were things in it that were immoral. That's 3,500 years ago in a culture that's radically different from your own. You have to really dig into the culture and why those laws existed before you can make an uh, uh, accurate judgment about whether, quote, what they were doing was immoral or not. That's very important. Perspective and context is incredibly important. I tell you not to resist an evil person. That's taken off of context and said, oh, so are we not supposed to defend ourselves? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. Jesus himself drove the thieves from the temple. Uh, Paul resisted authority all the time. So obviously, this is not what it's talking about. Very important. Mistake three, ignoring the difference between literary, literary genres used in the Bible. The Bible has multiple genres, historical narrative, poetry, right, wisdom literature, letters. You have to read those in the proper genre, okay? Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like versus a historical narrative. Mistake four, confusing human interpretation of the Bible with teachings of the Bible itself. I had somebody come up to me I, uh, down at the beach. Uh, we were witnessing, and this person said to me, the Bible teaches that the earth is the center of the universe. I said, no, it doesn't teach that. That's not something that was ever, that's ever taught in the Bible. That was taught uh, or embraced, that idea, by the Catholic Church at that particular time, but it's not actually in the Bible. They based it off Psalm 93.1, which is poetry, which says that the earth cannot be moved, 
but it's not talking about the Earth as the center of the universe. Okay, that's using the wrong narrative. Okay, so again, that's not what... Mistake five, neglecting to take the Bible's human qualities into account. Here, Paul um, forgets who he baptized. This is just human error. This is not the Bible as an error. And, and I've had a lot of people talk about that. Mistake six, assuming that partial accounts are conflicting accounts. This is another one. Um, the Gospels are different. They record things differently. In Matthew, Peter's response is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Mark, Peter's response is, you are the Christ. In Luke, Peter's response is, the Christ of God. They're all different. Does that mean that's an error? No, because it's all accurate to what actually happened. Um, it's just hearing it in a different way. And a good way to look at this is that if they were all exactly the same, then it would look like they were copied. But the slight differences actually show us that these are literally separate accounts all recording the same events. That actually adds to the credibility of the scriptures. Oh, this is another one. Uh, I'm going to skip it. Um, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Um, I'm really out of time here, so I'm going to wrap up there. And we have a few minutes, well, very few minutes of Q&A. So um, I'll real quick, if anybody has any questions, if you really like this lesson and you want to learn more about it, um, this is available back at my table. You can also... Um, Get a free DVD if you turn in the little slip that's on there um, that talks about that, and I'll stay in touch with you and give you that kind of information. So um, any questions before we move on to lunch? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we got one back here. On your website? Do you have anything for, uh, for like, kids at that level? Yes, anything my website is met from 13-year-old to adult. Uh, I've found that many adults appreciate it kind of uh, dumbed down a little bit. No, no that, nothing personal, but uh, the technical aspects, you know, um, sometimes some people, it's over their head, and, and so, yes, it's 13 to adult. Um, apologetics and just, just in that level, um, like a curriculum? Yes, um, the little slip here, uh, you should have gotten one of these. It has every class that's on my website on there. Yep. Cool. Next question, Paul? Hopefully I can say this eloquently. Uh, as far as grace goes, I've, I've always been fascinated by this when it comes to the truth. A true child of God cannot continue to habitually practice sin, First John 3 Six, if you could just, uh, maybe just for the beauty of the Lord, um, explain that. Okay, so, so um, you know, this is an issue that is pretty uh, uh, hard for some people. So there's a difference between, uh, well, okay, so there's willful sins, which is pretty much all sins are willful. Uh, but, so there's no escape there. But uh, a habitual sin, right, something that somebody keeps going back to and keeps pursuing, right, um, the Bible seems to indicate that that person may not be saved and may not have ever been saved. But it's very, you have to be very careful about this because um, the Bible is very clear about judging the intentions of the heart. 
And sometimes something that starts off as, quote, willful, and I cover this a little bit, but can become, become addicted, right? Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Uh, sometimes uh, somebody can be trapped in a habitual behavior that has dominated their life. And uh, if you've studied addiction at all, uh, I had a friend who was addicted to alcohol, and every week he would come to Bible study, and he'd be like, I'm a horrible person, I'm a horrible person. Uh, please pray for me, help me to get out of this. And this went on for a long time. Um, and we would pray for him and, and try to help him. And ultimately, um, God did uh, deliver him from that, and he was able to walk with the Lord, and he actually got involved in mission work and everything, and, and praise God for that. I think the, where we have to be really careful is when somebody is trapped in a habitual sin or they're engaging in a habitual sin and there's no godly sorrow. There's no remorse for what they're doing. And uh, we are not saved by what we do, neither by what we don't do, right? This is very important. We are not saved by what we do, neither by what we don't do. And it works both ways. The Bible says no, no one is saved by works, lest many man boast. And so we're saved by grace through faith. So your behavior cannot send you to hell, and, and your lack of that behavior cannot save you. Therefore, it's Jesus Christ and the, the payment on, that he made for us. And what really it's about is, okay, what is my relationship and attitude towards the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life? And some people struggle with this because they go, am I really saved? Um, because I keep falling. And what we have to go back to is um, throw ourselves on the mercy of the Lord and ask that he can change us. I heard a great quote recently that I love. Christianity is not something that you do. It's something that's done to you. And I think this is a, a very important to keep in mind, that Jesus Christ uh, saves us and changes us through the power of his Holy Spirit, Spirit as we invest in the Word of God. And uh, I hope that helps. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to be able to talk more about it and give more scripture, but I hope that's encouraging. I know everybody wants to get to lunch, so I don't want to. I don't want to um, <laughs> take too long here. <laughs> He's got his hand up over there. Yeah. Redemption power of the Holy Spirit, and we're all in process. Amen. So the other question I had for you was in the Bible about Ramses. It talks about Ramses, and I was told they put that in in uh, chapter 47 in Genesis yeah. Yeah. as an affirmation after inserted when it was actually a virus and later became Goshen, you know, where the Jews were in mm. mm -hmm. time of Joseph. Yeah. And you have a question. Can you explain that to me? I, I <laughs> okay, so all I would say is this on that particular issue. I'm, not, um, I'm familiar with this topic uh, generally, but I'm not an expert on it. Um, and I know there's people on the Veritas staff that are experts on this. Um, but there's a lot of controversy over this right now. This is one of the issues that's uh, really boiling right now. Um, if you're familiar with uh, patterns of evidence, uh, they just came out with the Moses controversy literally last week. Um, I recently uh, had a chance to talk to a gentleman who is an expert on Egypt who says that they've now found, I believe, 14 different Egyptian tombs that actually have the drawings of the Exodus in it, as well as uh, the Red Sea and the, the Egyptians dying. And he's working on a book on this. Um, and for a long time, uh, scholars have said the Exodus never happened. They've said this people group wasn't there. And that's a big deal, because if that didn't happen, well, obviously, it causes people to go, whoa, what's going on here? Well, it seems to me, um, and I'm not speaking for everyone, I'm speaking for myself, 
but it seems to me that the evidence is pointing towards the truth of the Exodus, obviously, the truth of Moses, and the evidence is becoming out that is very much overwhelming to me, showing that this is all real. The history of the Bible, as it's recorded, is accurate. The issue with Ramses, um, and I wish I could speak to this better, but as far as I understand it, the issue of the mention of Ramses isn't a matter of it not being in there. It's a matter of um, it was a, a reference point, and I don't want to speak more dogmatically on it because I, I just don't feel equipped enough to be able to give you a good answer on it, but it, it fits the historical narrative. It's not out of place, is my understanding. Say again? You may know more about this than I do. But, okay. Uh, but uh, I, okay. I think I understand what you're saying. We can talk about it out at the table so everybody else can eat. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> you ready to pray? Ready to go? Ready to pray? You ready to pray? Let's, Let's pray. pray. Okay. Lord, uh, we just want to thank you again that your word is true, God, that you've given us all the evidence we need to know it's true. Um, Lord, I pray for anybody in this room that today is struggling with walking with you. Maybe they haven't fully committed their heart or their mind to you, God. I pray, Lord, that you would touch them gently, Lord. Uh, you treat us all so gently and so kindly, even when we doubt, even when we stick our hand in your face. You're always there like a loving father welcoming us back. I pray for anybody in this room who has walked away from you or hasn't walked to you yet. I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they're nudged um, into your loving arms and that they would experience the joy of knowing you personally and having that relationship with you, God. Uh, bless our lunch now and bless the rest of our day. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Give them a... Warm welcome. Before you leave, I just uh, let you know. Just keep keep in prayer. We're we're praying about bringing uh, Kevin back and uh, sharing a little bit more. So praise the Lord. Will you enjoy your lunch? You know, be safe out there, and be back.